Ministerial Piety by Moses Hoag, a sermon on 1 Corinthians 9.21. Editor's Note The Synod of Virginia met at Lexington October 1810. The duty of opening the meeting with a sermon unexpectedly devolved on Dr. Hoag in the absence of the moderator. The substance of the following discourse was delivered on that occasion. It was afterwards reduced to writing by request of the Synod, with a view to its publication. That publication was prevented by a reason that need not be specified. It was the author's intention to inscribe it to the members of the Synod of Virginia, and to them it is now affectionately dedicated. Ministerial Piety A Sermon on 1 Corinthians 9.21 But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached the gospel to others, I myself should be a castaway. That a man may preach the gospel to others, and afterwards be himself a castaway, is too evident to require proof. For there is, certainly, nothing in the external offices of ministerial duty beyond the reach of an unsanctified heart. And, as the attention which we, my brethren in the ministry, ought to pay to the souls committed to our care has been a common theme of discourse at the opening of this judicature, it will not, I hope, be thought improper to devote this discourse to a very different subject, the attention we ought to pay to our own salvation. Of the difficulties with which a subject of this nature must necessarily be attended, I am not unapprised. If incautiously managed, it may, too probably, be not only unprofitable to you, but also injurious to others. Should there be, among the individuals composing this audience, any who are waiting for an occasion of dissatisfaction either with the gospel or its ministers, it is highly probable that the discourse I am about to deliver will furnish them with the occasion they desire, or at least with something which it will be easy for them to rest both to our disadvantage and their own destruction. But shall we be deterred by abuses of this nature from attempting to perform the kindest office in our power to our brethren in the ministry? This will hardly be expected. But our religious advantages are so various and so great that the measure in contemplation may perhaps be thought unnecessary. No preacher of the gospel will, however, I am confident, entertain such a sentiment. It will, indeed, readily be acknowledged that the religious advantages of stewards of the mysteries of God are numerous and great, but so also are their disadvantages. And that we need all the assistance which can in this way be afforded us, the text I have chosen is itself a sufficient evidence. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Here we may observe that this great apostle did not consider himself so sure of salvation, or rather that his assurance was not of such a nature as to supersede the necessity of the most effectual precautions to guard against the reverse. And yet if there ever was a man who had a right to entertain such a sentiment, Paul appears to have been that man. Delivered from a state of nature and brought into a state of grace by the most extraordinary means, exalted to the third heavens that he might be raised above the fear of earth and hell, in labors more abundant than any of his fellow apostles, and expressly assured by a revelation from Jesus Christ of grace sufficient for him. But notwithstanding all this, he considers it necessary to employ the most effectual precautions in his power to guard against a final disappointment. Lest that by any means, when I have preached the gospel to others, I myself should be a castaway. Not that the apostle was really in a state of uncertainty with respect to his final destiny. This would not accord with that full assurance of a happy immortality which he has elsewhere expressed in the most peremptory language. No, my brethren, we must not imagine this most faithful servant to have been in a state of painful uncertainty with regard to the ultimate issue of all his toils and conflicts in the Christian cause. But he had not learned to separate the means from the end as the manner of some theologians is. This may be strikingly illustrated by a very memorable event in naval history. 
When Paul was on his voyage to Rome, the vessel which carried him, being overtaken by a tempestuous wind, to support the desponding minds of his companions in danger, he positively assured them that there should be, quote, no loss of any man's life, but only of the ship, end quote. And this he did by an express revelation from God himself. But notwithstanding this, when he observed the shipmen, whose ministry was necessary to conduct the vessel to land, about to abandon it, he as expressly declared to the centurion and the soldiers, quote, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved, end quote. And thus, though fully assured that he should obtain the rewards of a faithful servant, yet in order to this he knew perseverance and a course of holy obedience to be indispensably necessary. Yes, my brethren, though he knew most assuredly that he should not be a castaway, yet he also knew that with a view of guarding against this most tragical event, it was incumbent upon him to keep under his body and to bring it into subjection. And happy would I think myself, should it be in my power to suggest anything from this interesting subject, which might have a tendency to induce each one of us to go and do likewise. In attempting this, however, instead of confining myself to the meaning of our text as it respected the Apostle Paul, I shall take the liberty of introducing such reflections as it seems calculated to present to the mind of an ordinary minister. And in this view, it seems to me to contain something indescribably solemn and impressive, lest that by any means, when I have preached the gospel to others, I myself should be a castaway. Though we are not permitted to suppose the apostle to have been under any uneasy apprehensions for his own fate when he committed these words to record, yet who of us, my brethren, can attentively read them without some emotions of anxious apprehension for himself? That a natural man of any considerable talents and attainments in literature should be disposed to preach the gospel in connection with any well-regulated church in our country, does not, it will readily be acknowledged, seem very probable. For the official duties he would be required to perform, and the life he would be expected to live, in such a connection, cannot reasonably be supposed to accord with the predominant affections of an unsanctified heart. And a man thus qualified for the sacred office might have turned his attention to some more lucrative and less perilous employment, for my own part, I acknowledge myself well satisfied that every member of our synod has been induced to enter upon the arduous work of the gospel ministry from a sense of duty, from a hope that having himself obtained mercy of God, it might be in his power to do something for the honor of his Redeemer and the salvation of his fellow men. But it is certainly possible for a man to be under the influence of zeal, and that even for God, which is not according to knowledge." And it must be of great importance for us to be well assured that this is not our case. Paul could say, quote, I so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. End quote. To avoid, therefore, the fate of a castaway, he had nothing to do but to persevere with diligence and fidelity in the course in which he had already made the most extraordinary progress. But is this the case with each of us, my brethren? There is certainly much reason to apprehend the reverse. Now, to avoid the fate of a castaway, the first thing which will claim our particular attention is to see that we are in the way, the straight and narrow way that leads to eternal life. It is not my intention, however, to undertake a statement of the evidences by which this important case is to be decided. With these evidences you are, I doubt not, generally well acquainted. I have thought, nevertheless, that it might not perhaps be amiss to take notice of a few of the many instances in which a preacher of the gospel may be in peculiar danger of entertaining a too favorable opinion of the state of his soul. 1. The nature of our office renders much attention to religious subjects indispensably necessary. That we may have it in our power to explain the Holy Scriptures to our people, we must read them with much attention and make them the subject of daily meditations. Nor will this alone be sufficient to qualify us for so great and perilous an undertaking. No, we must also avail ourselves of all the light which has been thrown upon the sacred writers by the best commentators and theological writers. And this will require much religious reading and reflection. But I need not enlarge in a case so very evident. It is easy to see that no man, let his talents be what they may, 
can be properly qualified for the place I now occupy without much attention to religious subjects. Should a preacher of the gospel then consider this attention, which our office renders so indispensably necessary, as a satisfactory or even probable evidence of true piety, he may in this way be most miserably deceived. 2. As the harvest is great, and faithful laborers few, it seems to be the good pleasure of a sovereign God sometimes to employ the labors of men destitute of real piety for the conversion of sinners and the edification of the church. It must by no means be imagined that the efficacy of the ministrations of the gospel depends upon the piety of its ministers. The faithful labors of pious ministers do, indeed, appear to be much more generally and extensively blessed than the labors of unconverted men. Nay, the life and ministry of the latter seem, upon the whole, to be the greatest curse that has ever befallen the church. We are not, however, warranted to conclude that none of this unhappy class are at any time used as instruments for promoting the designs of divine mercy towards our guilty race. The reverse appears to be not unfrequently the case. What a moving consideration! A preacher preaching a gospel, which is to some of his people the savor of life unto life, while it is to himself the savor of death unto death, instrumental in snatching others as brands from the burning, while he is plunging his own soul in deeper guilt, and it is much to be feared in deeper ruin, too, forever. The designs of divine mercy in this case may, it is true, be accomplished by a supernatural influence upon the minds of the hearers without any assistance being afforded to the preacher. There is, however, reason to think that it is sometimes otherwise, that the preacher is, on such occasions, not unfrequently the subject of a divine influence also, the principles of natural religion and virtue being greatly strengthened at the same time that the natural sensibility of his heart is powerfully excited, and in various ways which we cannot understand, he may be assisted in the discharge of ministerial duty. Such assistance is, we have reason to fear, too often considered as satisfactory evidence of vital piety. But for this there can be no just ground. How often have inflamed affections and a heated imagination been mistaken for supernatural aid? Admitting, however, a preacher to have satisfactory evidence that he has been thus highly favored, it is impossible for any assistance of this nature to constitute a better evidence of an interest in the peculiar favor of God than miraculous and prophetic gifts. And we have apostolical authority to assure us that between these gifts and charity, or genuine religion, there is no necessary connection. 3. Does a preacher feel sensibly for himself and the people committed to his care? Is he zealous in the discharge of ministerial duty? Does he address the immortal souls for whom he must give an account to God with earnestness and affection? This is well. I would to God we were all more engaged in this great work than we are. It must not, however, be forgotten that all this is within the reach of an unsanctified heart. Selfish as apostate man by nature is, it is impossible for any one who believes his Bible to be true not to feel deeply interested in the future state of his fellow men. Fearless of the future consequences of sin, as the children of men for the most part are, it is not uncommon for an impenitent transgressor to tremble under the apprehension of the wrath to come. And under the united influences of these affections, it is certainly possible for a preacher to be very much engaged both for himself and for his people. And yet have we not reason to apprehend that some preachers consider the zeal and affection with which their ministerial duties are performed as a good evidence of genuine religion? A most dangerous error, certainly. We know well that it is far from being uncommon for men, whose lives and whose doctrines are in direct opposition both to the doctrines and the precepts of the Bible, to be very zealous in propagating their most pernicious sentiments. The history of the church in all ages since its first establishment affords abundant proof of this mortifying truth. 4. A delight in the law of God after the inward man is justly considered as a scriptural characteristic of real piety. But as it is the business of a minister of the gospel to illustrate the nature of this law to his people, and to refute the various objections which a carnal heart will be ever ready to raise against it, while thus employed, 
Even a natural man may, it appears to me, be led to form a very favorable opinion of the law he is advocating, an opinion so favorable that he may be in danger of mistaking it for this high and holy affection. Similar observations might be made with respect to a cordial approbation of the way of salvation through a crucified Redeemer. While a minister is zealously engaged in recommending this salvation to others, he may, there is reason to believe, be so struck with a sense of its necessity and suitableness to the case of an apostate sinner as to imagine himself heartily pleased with it, and consequently entitled to all the blessings it secures to every true believer, at the same time that he is destitute of all just regard either to evangelical or moral righteousness. 5. A delight in reading and studying the Holy Scriptures is, we have reason to believe, not unfrequently considered by preachers as well as others as evidence of genuine religion. And it will readily be acknowledged that none but real believers rightly appreciate these sacred records. But it seems utterly impossible for any preacher who believes his Bible to be from God not to hold in high estimation a book of such incalculable value and to which he is so much indebted. And habit has, we know, in such cases a very powerful influence. Not that any force of habit will ever be able to reconcile a carnal heart to the spirituality and extent of the divine law, or to the self-abasing genius of the gospel of Christ. This nothing but the energies of divine grace can do. We have just seen, however, how the character in view may be induced to form a very favorable opinion of both. And in the Holy Scriptures there is much to entertain every attentive reader, and especially every well-informed mind and cultivated taste. The very extraordinary scenes there presented to our view might, one would think, be sufficient to arrest and fix forever our attention. Not indeed the unvaried uniformity of uninterrupted glory and happiness, but paradise lost and regained, a new world rising from the ruins of the old, and that by a long series of the most astonishing and glorious expedients. I may safely venture to affirm that neither the boldest excursions of romantic fancy nor the deepest colorings of the tragic muse ever presented to the mind of man anything equally calculated to touch the heart and captivate the soul as the real facts contained in the scriptures of truth. Nor is there any eloquence comparable to that of no inconsiderable part of the sacred volume. What variety united with the utmost simplicity, what beauty in the midst of the most astonishing sublimity, what energies of the affections do we find in these hallowed pages? Nothing, surely, can be more elusive than to suppose that merely a delight in biblical studies will constitute a satisfactory evidence of the piety of a gospel minister. 6. Should any man undertake to separate what the great teacher sent from God has indissolubly joined together, faith and good works, and make either in a state of mutilation the foundation of his everlasting hopes, he must be most miserably deceived. And yet we have reason to fear that no inconsiderable number even of the sacred order most presumptuously do this, and that in direct and manifest opposition to the most luminous and abundant scriptural evidence of their inseparable union, one class relying upon what they most absurdly call evangelical faith without works, that is, a faith that does not work by love and is not accompanied by good works, while the others trust to what they with equal absurdity call good works, works which do not spring from a true and living faith. But as I have no reason to suppose that any of the brethren I am addressing here so learned Christ, this simple statement of the case may suffice. Thus have I endeavored to point out a few of the many ways in which preachers of the gospel may be led to entertain a too favorable opinion of the state of their own souls. It is, however, by no means my intention to intimate that well-informed preachers are, upon the whole, more liable to this species of deception than their hearers. Their superior knowledge of human nature and of the nature and scriptural evidences of genuine religion ought, it seems to me, to do more than compensate for the peculiar dangers to which they are exposed. And may I not hope that the observations I have taken the liberty to submit to your consideration will operate as an inducement to us all to examine ourselves with the greatest impartiality, whether we be in the faith, 
and not to rest without scriptural evidence that we are really in the way that leads to eternal life. But we must by no means suppose that when this is accomplished, our work is done. In order to avoid the fate of a castaway, we must also keep under our bodies and bring them into subjection. This is certainly a reasonable service. Shall a system of flesh and blood, a body originally composed of the dust of the earth, govern us, and bring the powers of an immortal mind into a state of inglorious servitude? No, my brethren, we must not suffer ourselves to be thus abased and degraded. I keep under my body. How? Not, surely, by monkish austerities or macerations, corporal penances or severities of any kind, but by the strictest temperance, by occasional fasting, it is probable, by a series of laborious exertions in the Christian cause, and in a word, by all the various measures best calculated to render the body, with all its appetites and affections, subservient to the best exercises and interests of an immortal mind. Quote, Every one that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it that they may obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one who beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway." From this passage it evidently appears that there is in our text an allusion to the measures employed by the combatants in the Isthmian games in order to obtain a conqueror's prize. Very extraordinary are the privations to which these ambitious men submitted, and the labors and hardships they underwent to prepare themselves for the rude conflict. And to these preparatory measures, as well as to the conflict itself, the apostle had no doubt in this instance an express reference. This being admitted, it will evidently follow that the life which he thought it incumbent on him to live to avoid the fate of a castaway was a life of strenuous conflict and great self-denial. And such, my brethren, proper allowance being made for the different sphere in which we move is the life which we also ought to live for the same purpose. We are not indeed, as this apostle was, called upon to enter the lists with flesh and blood in a literal sense, to contend with furious and bloodthirsty persecutors of the church. From this the good providence of God has mercifully exempted us. It is not, however, to contests of this nature, but to such as are common to the followers of Christ in every age, that he seems chiefly to allude in the words of our text. For here we have no mention of any violence done to him by others, but only of the energetic measures which he thought proper to employ with a view of bringing his own body into subjection, or, in other words, of that life of daily conflict and self-denial which he thought it his duty to live that he might not be a castaway. It is, however, only to a few instances of that self-denial, to which ministers of the gospel seem to be under peculiar obligations, that the limits I must observe will allow me to solicit your particular attention. And in the first place, I would take the liberty to recommend to you what I solemnly enjoin upon myself, an exemplary moderation with respect to secular interest. Shall stewards of the mysteries of God be ambitious to be rich? This would be a miserable prostitution of their sacred character. Quote, he that striveth for the mastery must be temperate in all things, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier, quote. That a state of opulence might render our ministry more respectable in the estimation of the world, and afford us various opportunities of superior usefulness to our fellow men, will readily be conceded. But are we sure that we should be able to withstand the temptations of that perilous state, and disposed to avail ourselves of its superior advantages for promoting the great cause in which we are engaged? We are not. How hardly, says our Lord, shall they who have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? And surely with equal propriety may we say, how hardly shall a rich minister be faithful to his great trust? Shall we then be solicitous to obtain what would probably prove a dangerous snare and a real injury both to ourselves and to our people? Surely not. After the view we have just taken of the perilous situation of a rich minister, can it be necessary to observe that if riches increase, 
that if a minister should have larger possessions than is common for one of our order, he ought not to set his heart upon them or value himself on that account. Shall an ambassador of a redeemer who had not where to lay his head value himself on account of anything so extraneous to his character as large earthly possessions? No, my brethren, the man whose glorious office it is to be the honored instrument of detaching others from the love of this world must not himself love the world or glory in any of its possessions or most admired distinctions. Should a minister be poor, should he have but a small portion of the goods of this world, let him not murmur or despond, or even relax in such exertions as he may have it in his power to make, to promote the best interest of the souls committed to his care, quote, poor but making many rich, end quote. What dignity and abasement is here? Compared with such beneficence, what are all the riches and possessions of this world? Compared with such a character, how despicable do the most successful plunderers of nations appear, and how insignificant the richest man on earth who is not rich towards God. It must not, however, be imagined that we wish to exempt a minister from a duty incumbent upon all men, that of providing for himself and his own house. No, let him pay every reasonable attention to secular interest. But let him do this in humble confidence that while he is faithfully serving a master who has the hearts of men and the elements all under his control, he shall not want. But let him especially use this world as not abusing it. Let it be his daily care to manifest such a noble superiority to the little interest of time as will raise him above even the suspicion of being under the influence of a mercenary principle. Has the God of heaven been pleased to distinguish any of you, my brethren, by great intellectual powers? Let him who is thus highly favored be thankful for his superior advantages of doing good in the world, but let him not be elated with this distinction. In gifts of this nature there is no merit, nothing worthy of praise. No, it is not great talents, but the proper use of such as we have that will entitle us to the approbation of our Maker and our Judge. Great intellectual powers perilous distinction. Peculiarly awful must be the responsibility of such a minister, for to whom much is given, from him shall much be required. It is not, however, I am disposed to think, great but rather moderate talents which have been most useful in the church. To men of eminent abilities the church is indeed very much indebted. To humble the pride of infidelity she numbers among her sons and her most affectionate advocates a bright constellation of the first geniuses in the world. But to humble the pride of genius also, the observation just now made will, I am persuaded, be found to be perfectly correct. How often do we see great talents miserably prostituted? What, for the most part, is the object of a great genius? Mere instruction and usefulness? No, but rather to shine, to astonish and transport. And for all this the gospel ministry furnishes ample scope. Nor will we undertake to affirm that a preacher may not, in a certain subordinate, consecrated sense, aim at all this without incurring any just censure. Consider, my highly favored brother, the exalted nature of the work assigned you, the majesty of that Savior in whose name you speak, the worth of a soul redeemed by his blood, the perilous situation of a sinner on the verge of destruction, the danger of being yourself a castaway, and let genius exert its utmost energies, enlighten, convince, persuade, transport, and shine as a star of the first magnitude. But never presume to arrogate any praise to yourself. Let all be ascribed to the unmerited goodness and grace of God. The most eloquent, the most powerful, the most luminous and seraphic discourse that you shall ever have been enabled to deliver will fall far beneath the dignity of your theme. Yes, there are depths in the love of Christ which you cannot fathom. There is a malignity in sin which you cannot comprehend. There is a grandeur, a sublimity, and an importance in everlasting concernments of which you can form but very faint conceptions. And what seems still more mortifying, there are energies in the gospel of Christ, both for the conversion of sinners and the edification of the church, to which you never can do justice. What then shall we think of a man who approaches the altar of God to sacrifice to his own net and to burn incense to his own drag, who ascends the pulpit not to preach Christ Jesus the Lord, but himself, 
who undertakes to display the unsearchable riches of Christ, that he may have an opportunity of unfolding the riches of his own genius, who urges the strongest arguments he can devise against a life of impenitence and unbelief, not so much with a view of preventing the destruction of sinners, as to show how well he can reason, who entreats the guilty by the most awful and alluring considerations not to die, not so much from a desire to prevent that awful event, as to let his audience see how eloquently he can speak, and who sometimes even melts into tears over impenitent and obstinate transgressors, not so much in hopes of softening them down into a willing submission to the grace of the gospel, as that he may manifest the sensibility and goodness of his own heart. Humble penitent, take courage and foster desponding apprehensions no longer. Be not afraid that the thunders which are restrained, while this impious man thus boldly invades the honors of his avowed Lord and Master, will ever be let loose against thee, ever hurled against the head of a contrite supplicant. Let us beware, my brethren, that we do not thus in any instance or degree prostitute our sacred trust. Let us with the greatest caution guard against being at all elated on account of any talents we may suppose ourselves to possess. Let us never presume to arrogate to ourselves the praise of anything we do. No, we must ascribe all to the grace of God. Quote, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. End quote. The honor that cometh from man must never be our object, nor must we even think of anything done by us with self-congratulation or complacency. If God is pleased to assist us in the discharge of our duty and to bless our ministry, we ought to be very thankful and to rejoice that God is glorified, the kingdom of Christ advanced, and immortal souls saved through our instrumentality. But we must never suffer pride or self-congratulation to mingle with and pollute our joy. Should we voluntarily do this, should we thus exalt ourselves, God will most assuredly humble and abase and mortify us. And are we then, perhaps it will be objected, to have no regard to our own character and estimation in the world? Yes, my brethren, great regard. We ought to employ all the measures in our power to deserve the character of able and faithful ministers of Jesus Christ, but not for the sake of vain applause, not that we may be called of men rabbi, rabbi, but that we may have it more effectually in our power to accomplish the great objects of our ministry, that we may have it more effectually in our power to convince gainsayers, to persuade the impenitent not to die, and to afford more effectual aid to our fellow Christians in all the trials and temptations of the present life, and thus finally to lay our reputation at the feet of our crucified Redeemer, who made himself of no reputation for us. But we must never envy a brother who bears away the palm of superiority from us, or whose labors are attended with more success than ours. Nor must we ever have recourse to vain and unnecessary contests about character, as the manner of some even of the sacred order is. Contests of this nature will, I am persuaded, be for the most part unnecessary, even though we should have been slanderously defamed. There may possibly be some exception, but I think very few. A minister of the gospel should endeavor to render all measures of this nature absolutely unnecessary by acquiring a character which cannot be aspersed, by shining with a radiance sufficient to repel and disperse the dark fumes of calumny and defamation as fast as they arise. A minister of the gospel must not withhold from his people any doctrine or truth which he shall judge necessary for their edification, because it may be unpopular, nor may he connive at any sinful custom, because it may be fashionable, where providence has cast his lot. It is indeed far from being my wish to recommend any unnecessary strictness in opposition to the customs and manners of the age in which we live. The attempt, however, which has so often been made, and always without success, to reconcile religion with the predominant manners and customs of the world, must ever be found impracticable. Equally far am I from recommending an attention to the unessential peculiarities of a party in the pulpit. For a preacher to put off his people, who are either hungering or famishing for the bread of life, with the dry husk of controversy, and that about matters confessedly not essential to their edification, is, in my opinion, a miserable prostitution of his sacred office. But doctrines there are, and doctrines to which the carnal heart and the wisdom of this world will ever have strong objections, 
which are nevertheless of too much importance in the Christian system to be omitted out of respect to any man or number of men. A minister of the gospel must deny himself the pleasure and advantage of literary pursuits and theological researches when the ignorant among his people are to be instructed, when the sick are to be visited, when the dying are to be assisted in their last conflict, or when in any other way he can render more essential service to the great cause in which he is engaged than by the studies of the closet. Nor is he permitted to consider any service too humiliating, or any toil or suffering too great for him to undergo, for the honor of his Lord and the best interest of his fellow men. Not that he should, without evident necessity, wear out his constitution and shorten his days by oppressive labors or services of any kind, quite the reverse. But when duty calls, let him never count the cost, never shrink from any toil or any sufferings. No, not even though his life were to be spent in the service of his Lord and Master, Quote, for he who thus loseth his life shall find it. End quote. But would not such zeal, such diligence, such exertion, and especially would not such self-denial render a minister of the gospel very miserable? No, but on the contrary, they would render him one of the happiest men on earth. The faithful and diligent Christian who thus denies and humbles himself will the once humbled Redeemer delight to honor and exalt. While he lives not to himself but to his divine master, his divine master will manifest himself to him as he does not to a less faithful disciple, and grant him more satisfactory evidences of an interest in his peculiar favor. And what is self-denial, of which we are all so much disposed to be afraid, but a return from a state of miserable thraldom to the liberty of the children of God, a return from vanity, and an endless series of vexing disappointments to the great source of all enjoyment, a return from sin and folly to righteousness and peace and joy unspeakable. What is it, my brethren, that mars the peace and darkens the evidence of a real believer? Is it not the strength and prevalence of unsanctified affections? Now to deny oneself is to mortify these affections. And this is the same thing as to say, it is to become spiritually minded, and to be spiritually minded is peace as well as life. Thus we may see that to keep under our bodies and to bring them into subjection is the readiest way to obtain satisfactory evidence of a state of grace. Even a conscientious discharge of the duty itself will furnish surer evidence of genuine religion than the highest ecstasies of religious joy. Nay, it may justly be considered as the touchstone of gospel sincerity, a minister without real religion may do much and suffer much, may make great sacrifices and take much pains to get his heart fervently and affectionately engaged, both in the closet and in the pulpit. But to keep under the body and bring it into subjection, to retire into ourselves and commune closely and much with our own hearts, to trace out with impartial accuracy its most intricate foldings, that every guilty propensity and affection and desire may be subdued, and every thought brought into obedience to Christ, to prefer his honor to our honor, and the interest of his kingdom to our temporal interest, to set our affections on things above and not on the things of this world, and in a word, to live no longer to ourselves but to him who died for our redemption, here is labor which none but a faithful servant will undergo, here is a conflict which none but a faithful servant will maintain, and here is a cross which none but a disciple indeed will take up. Supported by a lively sense of the favor and presence of God, what is toil? What is suffering? What are all the hardships and difficulties which a minister has to encounter in the discharge of his difficult office? Happy man! Whatever may assail him from without, he has peace. He has a heaven in his own breast. Wherever he goes, he carries with him a sweet savor of the knowledge of his God and Savior, and thus holds out, as he has opportunity, to the view of his fellow men, the word of life. His life is a most instructive sermon. To the fullness of his Savior he has daily access for grace to help in time of need. To his people, therefore, he goes forth in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of peace, and his labors are blessed. He does not run as uncertainly, nor fight as one that beateth the air. What must he feel when the souls which he has been instrumental in rescuing from the jaws of destruction rise up and call him blessed? 
What will he feel when his faithful, though imperfect, services shall meet the decided approbation of his Savior and his Judge? Quote, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. End quote. Happy people who are blessed with such a minister. What might they not obtain through his ministry and intercession? For like a prince he has power with God. Yes, my brethren, he is a blessing not only to the people committed to his care and to the particular society to which he belongs, but also to the whole church and the world. For it is especially such characters who have the honor to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But where, my brethren, shall we find these interesting truths exemplified and exhibited to view in their full luster? Where shall we find such a minister, such a burning and shining light? Alas, quote, how has our gold become dim, and our most fine gold changed, end quote. How very different, for the most part, are the preachers of our times from the primitive heralds of the gospel. It is far from being my intention to become an accuser of the brethren, for the number of faithful pastors with which the church is blessed in our day, we ought to be very thankful. But if we wish to contemplate the character I have been attempting to describe in its highest glory, and to see the truth I am endeavoring to illustrate exemplified in its fullest evidence, we must go back to the ages of primitive Christianity. And even here the great apostle of the Gentiles claims our particular attention. Where shall we find labors like his, or self-denial like his? And yet so far was he from being overwhelmed or cast down that he seems to have been the happiest man on the face of the earth. Nowhere do we meet with such bursts of joy and triumph as in his epistles. In the midst of his greatest sufferings he could say, I am filled with comfort, I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And perfectly correspondent to so triumphant a career is the closing scene of his life. Quote, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. But what, my brethren, must be the condition of a preacher who refuses to pay any proper attention to the duty exemplified in the text? Can he be happy? Will he be likely to enjoy much of the consolations of the gospel which he undertakes to preach? So far from it, that such an unfaithful servant cannot reasonably expect to possess any satisfactory evidence that he is in a state of grace. And without this evidence, how shall a man undertake to discharge the arduous duties of so sacred an office? How shall he denounce the terrors of the Lord against others, while he has so much reason to consider himself in the same condemnation? How shall he venture to explain the nature of genuine religion to others, while he has so much reason to fear that he is a stranger to it himself. A man who has no just sense, either of his danger or responsibility, may perhaps do all this, and pass on in his guilty career without much uneasiness, but this a truly pious man cannot do. How many perplexing considerations must rush into the mind of a pious minister in a state of awful uncertainty with respect to the approbation of his Maker and his final destiny? Not merely, as is the case with others, have I reason to fear that I am in the way to ruin, but, in addition to this painful apprehension, have I reason to fear that I have usurped an office to which I had no just claim, that I have run without being sent, that I have undertaken to point out to others the way to heaven without knowing it myself, that I am only a blind leader of the blind, that I have been misleading souls committed to my care, and that after I have preached to others I myself shall be a castaway. And will not these considerations be sufficient to induce each of us to observe, with the most earnest attention, the great duty contained in our text? Need I, my brethren, entreat you to consider what it is to be a castaway? Was it not compassion for the souls of men which induced you to forego easier and more lucrative employments for the arduous and perilous office of the gospel ministry? Have you not often traced the gloomy outlines of the infernal prison, that you might, by the terrors of the Lord, deter your people from the way that leads to destruction? Is it not your daily and hourly and anxious inquiry, what can I do, what measures not already tried in vain shall I adopt, to preserve from endless ruin the precious souls committed to my care? And while you are thus engaged for others, will you neglect yourselves? 
while you see the danger to which your people are exposed and tremble for them, will you not provide for your own safety? While you are thus zealously and affectionately preaching the gospel to others, will you suffer yourselves to be cast away? Thus, my brethren, have I endeavored to give as clear and comprehensive a view as my limits would admit of our danger and the measures suggested in the text for guarding against that danger. And if the attention I have paid to this subject should only prove a means of making a deeper and more influential impression of our responsibility upon my own heart, while my span of life is lengthened out, I should consider the trouble this discourse has given me amply rewarded. But should I also have reason to expect that this feeble effort will be of some real advantage to the members of our synod in general, no language could furnish appropriate terms to express my obligations for such a favor. Ah, should it prove the means of preserving one dear brother from being a castaway, eternity would be too short to show forth the riches of the grace to which this glorious event must be ascribed. I can safely say that for each of you I feel a tender solicitude. To you I feel myself united by very solemn and endearing bonds. We are fellow servants of the same great Master, have the same gospel to preach, the same enemies to oppose, the same difficulties to encounter, the same conflict to sustain, the same race to run. Our work, our danger, and our responsibility are the same. With many of the members of this body have I often met in our ecclesiastical judicatures. With no inconsiderable number have I often taken sweet counsel and gone to the house of God in company. With the greater part have I frequently sat down at a communion table, that bond of mutual love among brethren in Christ. But if after all this any of us should be cast away, how will the scene be changed? How does David lament his fate when he was only for a few days banished from the house of God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them into the house of God with the multitude that kept holy day. Should any of us then, my brethren, be cast away, with what unutterable anguish will a recollection of the privileges we have once enjoyed, after they have been forever lost, fill our souls? No more joyful meetings in ecclesiastical judicatures. No more going to the house of God in company with dear friends. No more preaching or hearing of the gospel forever. But the subject is too awful to pursue. Did we know assuredly that such will be the fate of an individual belonging to our synod, how would it alarm and distress us? Did we know assuredly that I who speak, some of you who occupy the place of hearers, or some absent member will be a castaway, what anxious apprehensions and what searchings of heart would it occasion? And ought we not to be as jealous each for himself, and as solicitous for our fellow members as in the case just stated? In Christ's own family, among his chosen disciples, there was one insincere professor. And if there be none of that description among us, we have certainly abundant reason to be thankful. And now, my brethren, before I take my leave of you, permit me to request you to turn your attention to the people committed to your care. See what a large proportion of them are perishing in sin. And are we sure that we have done everything in our power to prevent their destruction? that no more effectual measures can be adopted than those already employed for their salvation? Let us not be too hasty in concluding that we have exhausted all the treasures of divine mercy, either with respect to ourselves or our people, that no superior assistance for ourselves in the discharge of ministerial duty or more effectual grace for them is within our reach. Quote, the hand of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, end quote. I will venture to affirm there is one thing which we might do for them more than we have yet done. We might pay greater attention to ourselves, to the state of our own souls. Ah, did we feel for ourselves as we ought, we should soon see a glorious change in the state of our people. We should then feel for them, preach to them, pray for them, and live for them, in a way that would scarcely fail to be attended with the happiest effects. And now, my brethren of the laity, suffer me to offer a few things to your consideration before I conclude. Can you behold with unfeeling hearts your ministers exposing themselves to such peril on your account, striving at the risk of an aggravated destruction should they perish to accomplish your salvation? And shall it be to any of you in vain? 
Are not your souls as precious as the souls of your ministers? And if it be such an awful thing to perish as a preacher, must it not also be an awful thing to perish as a hearer of the gospel? Should we perish together, you may perhaps behold us in some lower vault of despair. But will this be any alleviation of your misery? Should you baffle all the efforts of your ministers to preserve you from destruction, what excuse will you offer? What plea will you devise an arrest of judgment in the great day of general retribution? Will you plead the inefficacy of the means instituted for your salvation? Ah, these means have been efficacious for thousands of the greatest transgressors, and why not in your case also? Are any of you disposed to allege that if some preacher of superior eminence had preached you the gospel, you would have been persuaded? And will any of you venture to the bar of God with this plea? Do it not. There you will see many condemned for not obeying the gospel when it was preached by a prophet, by an apostle. Nay, there you will see many condemned for not obeying the gospel when it was preached by the great Lord of both. Do not expect too much from your ministers. Remember that they are men, not angels. And were they even angels, they could do nothing for you without a diligent cooperation on your part. If the God of heaven has appointed ministers to preach the gospel to you, will you not hear it and obey it, that you may not die but live forever? Waste not the precious time given you for a much better purpose in devising vain excuses. The time is not far off when you will be stripped of them all, and surely there cannot be a greater infatuation than to waste in this way your day of grace, the only season allotted for your repentance and amendment of life the only season allotted for your preparation for an endless eternity. Though the subject I have been endeavoring to discuss has a more particular reference to ministers of the gospel, you will not, it is hoped, consider it inapplicable to your case. The way to heaven is the same for you as for your ministers, the same straight and narrow way of self-denial and mortification. If you would avoid the fate of a castaway, it is required of you as well as of them to keep under your bodies and bring them into subjection. And while your ministers are zealously laboring and exposing themselves to so much danger for you, will you do nothing for them? Will you not be helpers of their joy and strengthen their hands and afford them all the assistance in your power and their arduous works? Is not the great cause in which they are engaged your cause also? It is the cause of God and of humanity." Look around you, my Christian brethren, and behold the ignorance, the impiety, the profligacy of the world still lying in wickedness. Behold the multitudes everywhere perishing in sin, and say, Is it not time to awake from your guilty slumbers? Is it not time to seek the Lord until he come and rain righteousness upon us, upon our churches and our country? Ah, would only all the friends of Zion of every name, laying aside their most unnatural animosities, and disputes of little importance, thus unite with one heart and one soul in the great cause of our common Christianity, we might soon expect to see better times, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Yes, we might then confidently expect that our heaven would shower down righteousness and our earth bring forth salvation. Let us then, dear brethren, ministers and people, unitedly resolve in dependence upon grace that whatever others may do, we will exert ourselves with zeal and perseverance in this great cause, or, in other words, that we will keep under our bodies and bring them into subjection, lest that by any means, after we have preached or heard the gospel, we ourselves should be cast away.